0: And welcome, everybody, to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Seid. From the city in the forest, I'm Kurt Dupuis. We've got a great show today. So our guest is going to be fantastic, Dax are I'll kind of give you a, an overview of, of him before we get into that segment, but you're definitely going to want to hang around for that interview. But we're going to start off with a little bit of a thank you to our audience um, yeah. who've, who've checked out the show, who have listened to episodes. I, Kurt will tell you, I do not want to look at the numbers like of who's listening. I don't want to get discouraged. What I kind of, and I told you this, Kurt, Like what I view as success is- The engagement. Yeah. Financial professional comes up, says, I've been listening to the show. It made me think. And I've been getting that. We've both had it. and It's been awesome. Yeah. You know who you are who've reached out and we've spent time talking about episodes and your business. But I'll tell you, Kurt, when you shared the numbers with me, which I didn't want, it's been, I don't know. Is it fair to say it's, not it's been that, well, right? well uh, above expectations? Definitely. And, yeah, I mean like in the hundreds of ev- every episode and that's not hundreds of, you know, we're listening to it 10 times a piece. That's different people individual that are listening downloaders, in. yeah. Yeah, so I you know, first of all, thank you to everyone. That's the first thing I want to say. It means a whole lot to both of us. And then the second thing I'd say is okay, we're in the hundreds now consistently. Let's get in the thousands. So Share if you could do us a favor, share it with someone else. If everyone does that to one person, um, the show will will explode and uh, you know that would just that would be awesome, obviously. And the more voices that are represented
1: in the content that we're throwing out there, the, the better right because the we're, we're really emphasizing this community thing, right it's it, it's yeah. we're really curating a place for people to share these types of ideas um, and that only gets better with more participation.
0: The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. Not everything that we do is going to be business-related. We're going to have some fun on the show. We know there are people listening regularly that get a kick when we do some fun things. Got to give the people what they want. So what we're going to do for this this initial segment is we're just going to talk about music a little bit. And okay. the nature of this segment is... We were each going to share a couple of of bands or musicians that were really influential and important to us, with the caveat that they can't be too popular. And the the, the example I give because I grew up, you know, I, I was born in eighty one and 90s or when I started listening. Obviously, like Nirvana was a really big deal to me. I shouldn't say obviously, but everyone knows Nirvana, so I'm not going to share like Nirvana. Maybe you lead the way, Kurt. Oh, let's man. let's first of all, Seth set the scene for me, you know, where did we know you grew up in Louisiana, but give us a little sense of like how you came across music when you were younger. So my mom played piano in the church
1: growing up. I led the youth bands when I was in like middle school, high school. Yeah. I also had a fairly strong religious upbringing. So that was highly influenced what I listened to uh, really yeah. early on. So I think I can remember the first CD because I got a boom box and a CD. I don't remember the name of the, the album, but there's this Christian artist called Carmen. So if anybody Carmen. listened to Carmen in the nineties, apparently he was a big deal. Uh, but I remember that probably being like 12 or 13 years old, getting that boom box that you could put in your room. It was, it was a transformative experience.
0: So first of all, you said you played
1: music. What do you play? So my primary instrument is guitar, to be specific, uh, acoustic guitar. I'm not a lead guy, but um, but I, growing up around music, I mean, I played the drums a little bit. I play piano by ear, bass. If you have to, you know, I I can tinker with a lot of things.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I play some guitar now, but I didn't grow up playing it. I learned it later. In the, uh, acoustic or the, electric? Uh, both actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, and and I'm a rhythm. Like I don't. I'm I'm trying to get into the not whole. Shredding. You know yeah i I need to figure out how to solo but i know chords and so you you know you know enough chords you can play most of the songs to some degree and then you get you a loop pedal and then you can
1: start throwing in some some shredding lead riffs in there
0: yeah there's definitely steps i need to take to like i'm at a plateau where i play chords well and then it's like what now but anyways we digress so so then you're, you're listening to the christian band what was the name of that band again Carmen is the name of the artist. It's the first CD I ever remember getting. And what type of, uh, what type of music is it? You said Christian, but what kind? I mean, he was like Christian pop rock or or whatever. Yeah. Okay.
1: But, but that doesn't answer your question. So I'm going to break your rules and I'll tell you, uh, two, one influential album and one influential band, um. So the album, an album that means a lot to me, even to this day, because when you ask the question, even the, like a flood of emotions start coming back, is yeah. the album X X and Y, I think. It's a Coldplay album. And I oh, know yeah, you're going to sure. make fun of me
0: a ton for this. No, Coldplay is great. I, um, I love Coldplay. Obviously
1: well known. But this happened to come out at a time, um, I don't know if you know this, but I lived in Mexico kind of on and off for a year. And it came out towards the end of my time at, X, at in Mexico, which can only be described as the best of times and the worst of times. So the worst of times was when I was leaving and didn't have a dollar to my name. And it was just like a lot of bad things going on. And this album was the only one I had in my car that is I listened that right? to the entire way, driving back from Monterey, Mexico, back to South Louisiana. And so it means a lot to me So because was yeah. a, it was a pretty rough time in life. The band that you would never guess that I have been obsessed with is this band called The Used.
0: I love the use. Are with you kidding me? Oh, of yeah. course, I am. The use is amazing. They're like
1: the only screamo kind of kind of band that I've ever really been into. But when you know, when it's like Friday afternoon, work's done, and you just want to rage. There's nothing better oh, the than the use. The used
0: is amazing. The, the the lead singer, I don't know if you've heard like their stuff lately. He does. He can't scream anymore. Like his voice is shot, but it's still good music because the because <laughs> the songs are that good that even without that element in it, it still sounds good. Yeah, I didn't even though
1: they're still making music, but I remember oh, hearing I stories. Last, yeah, they back still in the are. I, I saw him last year. Like his warm up for vocals was to bust the the filter off of a cigarette
0: and then just inhale it real quick
1: before oh, the show. Great.
0: They're great. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, and by the way, we're going to have to get into that story of you in Mexico, <laughs> train wreck that's of a, a life. That's a really good one. So, so what about you? It, You're a big music buff. What What are your yeah, influential I, bands? So, I'll paint the picture. So, in I grew up in New Jersey, and you know, the early influences uh, on me were were you know guitar driven music, which is like Nirvana, Metallica. Those are really big influences, but but not so, Springsteen, to be clear. Springsteen's from the town I'm from in Freehold. We're we're both from Freehold, New Jersey. Um, I like Springsteen, but I'm not like a Springsteen guy. I need to spend some more time with it. But no, Springsteen was a little bit before my time because he was like 80s. I'm born in 81. So really when I started to get into music, it was the 90s. And it's not like he didn't put anything out, but he was less big then. So well, but basically, so we had a lot of that music and there was kind of two kinds of venues that you can go to to see music. They had the super big venues like in you know, Giants Stadium and where the Devils and Nets played, Mm -hmm. like was called Continental Airlines Arena back then. But then you had these small clubs. And, you know, small little clubs that you'd go to see bands play. That's what I did for fun mostly was go to see live music. And so you go to see a band and then you listen to this awesome opening band. And all of a sudden you've got... And and the trading of mixtapes, did you have that at all? Like where they would hand <laughs> out singles and mixtapes and stuff? Did you have any of that? No, I wasn't in that scene. So anyways, it was a lot of heavy driven music. So I'll tell you the the one band that came out that kind of like changed everything... And the, they're still in this category for a lot of people is a band called the Deftones. Have you mm-hmm. heard of the Deftones at I've all? i Deftones. I don't,
1: yeah, I don't know their music well. But so I-
0: if you, if you don't like music that's heavy and screaming, there's a part of the Deftones out there that you, you're absolutely like, probably not going to like their first album is very heavy. You know, I kind of separate it from bands like, you know, that were just constantly hard. And that's what they did like more like a corn or those kinds of bands, because there's, there's this incredible, melodic element to, to them. So you've had this, you know, guitar driven, heavy driven music, but they, they had this singer that really can sing and like has sounds like a really good singer. When those albums started coming out, they, Adrenaline was the first one, which is really, really heavy. Then this album called Around the Fur came out and then they released their third record, which is called White Pony, which is, I mean, people that were around and knew them, that just kind of, that album changed everything.
1: And is not it true that like people that uh, that are into Deftones, it's it's like, like no one's ambivalent about them. It's it's yeah. either like I'm in the cult, you know. I think I think of like Fish and Rage Against the Machine, right? They're not for yeah. everybody, but if you're into it, you're super into them. Is yeah. that the same thing
0: I, for Deftones? I, the reason that I say no is because I think that. That there's parts of Deftones' music that would be accessible to anyone, and that's why I bring it up. Because, Mm -hmm. like, if you're into heavy, heavier music, put on Seven Words on Adrenaline, and just you'll be in heaven. But you know, there are just some amazingly beautiful songs that I don't think it's almost like I don't care who you are, and so I'll I'll give you a couple of them. They're they're the more popular ones, but they're on the White Pony record. Uh, One's called Change in the House of Flies. And the other one um, is called Digital Bath. Give those two songs a listen. I, I'd be surprised if most people that picked up and listened didn't think that they were that they were amazing, incredible. Now, l- listen. Some people just don't like guitar-driven music like that, and and but but give those a listen. So then, the second one for me is I didn't realize that there is an incredible reggae scene that has reemerged, and really um, that whole scene. Um, I just love I'll give two bands um, One is Revolution R-E-B It's Revolution Okay uh, The other one is Stick Figure Man just pull those Two bands up On Spotify It doesn't even matter Just click any track That's what's been Really hard about the pandemic um, Well there's a lot I mean I don't want to be like so many people are going through stuff, it's, but not being able to see concerts is, uh, has been a real bummer for yeah. six months. <laughs> like, that's
1: been... have you seen any of the yeah. virtual,
0: virtual ones?
1: I, I've tried I a couple not... of the artists.
0: They're tough to watch.
1: It's I should. just not the same.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, Metallica had like, did you hear they did like a drive-in show? Oh yeah. I didn't go. But I think that's kind of a cool thing where people were pull up in their cars and they were distance and the, the really good sound system. But I'll tell you what, man, I I cannot wait for concerts to start coming back. Um, yeah, yeah. One day, go check out those bands. Shoot us an email of some stuff that influenced you. Um, we, we love music recommendations, so tell us kind of what were a couple of the bands that really were important to uh, to you all.
1: Yeah. Good deal. And as always, check out this episode as well as previous episodes at touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth and reach out to us by email at the whole truth at touchstone If you have band recommendations, if you have segment recommendations, uh, if you have anything that you want us to
0: cover on the show, we're going to jump into in a second, our interview with Dax Stadjuar. He's in the LPL world, and he's got a, an organization called The Network, which is a resource to to various LPL independent advisors. Dax specifically is responsible for practice management. And so basically, he's just going to talk about what he's sharing with his folks right now. So it's going to yeah, be fascinating. Really cool. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating discussion. So uh, stick with us. We'll be right back. And welcome, everybody. We are very excited to have our guest, Dax Staduar on The Whole Truth. Welcome, Dax.
2: Hey, thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate it.
0: Did I get that last name right?
2: You did. Everything's great. staduar, you got it.
0: Yeah. I mean, Nailed it. Uh, you know, for uh, my name, although not as many letters, I think one out of 15 people probably pronounce it correctly. What did you think it was, Kurt, when you first saw my name? Did you did you know it was side? No, I, I went seed for a while. I didn't know if it was seed or side. I get a lot of side too. that. That happens a lot. So, oh, yeah. 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 But we are we you know, I'm glad I got your name right, Dax. We are super excited to have you on. Um, we're going to be talking about you know, you, your firm, um, some things around the regulatory environment, there's just a lot to talk about with you. So maybe let's start with, you work for an organization called The Network. Let's start with who The Network is, maybe the history and what you guys focus on.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the Financial Services Network, which we kind of shortened to The Network uh, tagline, Common Bond of Excellence. You know, The Network was founded uh, back in 1984, actually. Uh, by a gentleman named Jim Harrington. Uh, Jim had had a, a, a long career uh, in the insurance agency business, uh, branch manager in the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, and, and Jim, you know, coming into the middle of the 80s, he saw an opportunity to take his business independent. And Jim did. He took the business independent uh, and joined an independent broker-dealer in 1984. And you look back on that, Jim had one really overarching theme, and that was, I want to make this business a win for three different entities. I want to make it a win for our advisors. I want to make it a win for uh, the broker-dealer. Uh, and I want to make it a win for the strategic partner community, really the, the community of strategic partners, wholesalers, consultants out there among the mutual funds, the annuities, the insurance, etc., he said, if, if we make it a win and all of our agendas are aligned to take care of that retail client, this can't fail. I mean, it literally can't fail. And you, know, you fast forward from 1984 to about 2008, Jim and I crossed paths in 2008. And, you know, make a long story short is after having some good dialogue back and forth, Jim asked me uh, to come on board and be a succession plan and run the network. Nothing you know, was going on in the world in 2008, right? I mean, to put a yeah. out. it's pretty interesting 2008 and early 2009 but that really gets you kind of a fast track of you know jim starting the network you know it's evolution and you know how i got involved with the network and you know if you want me to i can kind of pivot to you know what has happened since then and kind of my background a little bit or or we can pivot elsewhere but tell me where you want to go
0: yeah, that, that would be good. Um, talk about that. And then also talk about, you know, kind of what the, what's the focus of the network? What do you guys do, you know, present day?
2: I had served as an Army officer, infantry officer, uh, for just under eight years. Um, I love the leadership. I, I came into a family business. My wife and I were both Army officers, and we left the service in 2002 and came into a family business. Uh, my dad had been an investment advisor and registered rep for... Um, you know, over thirty-five years at that point in time, he had just bought a business. So my wife and I literally came in, took our seven, sixty-six, fifty-three, twenty-four insurance licenses in California. You know, all over about a five-five month period of time, and jumped. You know, both feet forward into the financial services space. But and that was back in um, you know roughly two thousand two. But you know, getting getting on board the network. I mean, Jim had asked me to come in, run the company, move down to the Bay Area. We were going through a broker dealer change ourselves. We we're Trying to recruit. We were trying to retain advisors. We asked Christopher Mercado. I'm one of the owners of the network now. I asked Christopher to join the network as a, as a business partner and a future owner of the network in 2012. And then we had another gentleman, Jeremy Olin, uh, another owner of the network now, who was a network advisor for many, many years already. And But Jeremy was doing some pretty unique stuff with portfolio management and helping advisors and we asked him to come on board. And 2016 rolled around. Jim uh, and the three of us put together the succession plan. We purchased the network from Jim in April of 2016. And Christopher and Jeremy and I are all equal owners of the network. And you, know, you asked that question about um, kind of what does the network do these days? We have six businesses in one. It's a it's a compliance operations business. It's a business transitions business. It's not just you know recruiting an advisor and moving accounts anymore. It's literally built. Uplifting a business and moving it from one place to another, uh, infrastructure and all t- business consulting, and I'll touch on that here in a minute. But then that tech consulting, uh, portfolio consulting, as well as virtual administrative services—that's that is what we do today. You know, for our 326 advisors and anyone else you know who who wants to come on board
1: i love the name that network it has such a great like west coast bay area kind of feel to it um as if zuckerberg himself might be involved what do you see as really the value that putting all of these smaller niche businesses together in a one-stop shop ecosystem what's what's the value that ends up uh trickling down to the financial professionals
2: first i like to just tell people listen trust has got to be built you know, right up front, right? And usually trust is built when you're talking to somebody because you truly understand their situation. I mean, you're listening and you understand their situation. I don't know how many times we just sit down with somebody, no matter where they're at, another independent broker dealer or at a regional captive or a wirehouse and you'll say, I, I think I know what you mean. And they're they're all they're all trying to figure out how do they run this small business. And they're all bumping up to the same challenges, which is, oh, my gosh, I I have to employ people. You know, I have to manage money. I have to service. And I like to sit there and say there's five things every small business owner. I don't care what business you're in. There's five things you have to do every day. You have to find and prospect. You have to engage and close. You have to transition and integrate that new client into your business processes You have to service and support them on a daily basis, and you need to build depth and retain that relationship. And the problem is you can't do it all. If anything, I tell advisors, you have to only focus on two things. You have to find and prospect, and you have to build depth and retain that relationship. Everything else in the middle, you have to find people to help you. And will that be people right there next to you in your office or virtually? I mean, if you're going to find and prospect, engaging and closing should be a team effort. People need to see a team. Transition integration, that's an administrative function. You shouldn't be doing that. Daily service and support, 80% of the questions that come in the office should be handled by somebody else, not you. Those 20%, the really money-making, really building depth and retention questions, You know that's what you need to take. And, and when we talk to folks and we tell them that's the way we see the world, they say, oh my gosh, you're doing it. You're running a small business as well. You're dealing with it you understand what my needs are. And then we just tell them what would the services we have are, whether it be our virtual administrative assistant team or our portfolio consulting or tech consulting or the other resources we have with law firms, CPA firms, et cetera. They say, you've built the business model to help me do that. And and that's where then I think the value comes in is we've listened to enough advisors. We have built the resources that they need, or we're also innovating when they ask us to do other things and build out a custom solution. I You know, service business isn't scalable. I mean, many people try to make it scalable. We just have a lot of great people that roll up their sleeves every day and take care of our advisors. And we're very fortunate uh, that we have the team to do that.
0: Well, what's your competition look like? I know there's some other organizations, if that's the right word, that do this, you guys seem to be the biggest or at least in the one out here that I come across the most and hear the most about. What does the competition look like? And am I correct when when I say that you guys are the most
2: prominent? You know what? Within the LPL ecosystem, you know we're, we're one of the largest of the enterprise offices. I mean, I've got some great friends out there in the same business you know, that we are in. And, and I think we're... We all probably 80% see the world the same way. It's just a matter of how we go about solving those problems and bringing solutions to the table for, for the advisors in our community. There is a lot of competition. Uh, I mean, and, and there's places we don't compete either. I mean, that we'll sit there and say, we're not going to be a landlord. Uh, we're not yeah. going to take down office space. Other people do take down office space. Other people have built, you know, single model solutions for investment management. Everything we do is custom. So once again, it's everybody can have a portfolio consulting, you know, or, or a virtual CIO group. It's really about A, how you price it, you know, B, what does the team look like? C, what are the variances in in the execution? And I think that's from whether whether you take maybe the top 10 things advisors would ask for, whether it be office space, infrastructure, technology, portfolio work, you know, virtual admin, operations, compliance, et cetera. It's literally different levels. Uh, I mean, think of it kind of like a um, an equalizer board, you know, for, um, you know, for sound, you know, sound booth kind of stuff. It's really how many switches do you have and then kind of what level of service do you provide? At the end of the day, it does come down to that trust conversation and just saying, hey, you know, have we built trust? You know, do we understand what you're looking for? And then getting to that buying conversation.
0: Yeah. That's excellent. And I know your role within the network, you know, you're, you're kind of the guy who focuses on practice management. That's one of the, the big reasons we wanted to have you on here. One of many in the world of practice management, where do you spend your time? I mean, what, what do you, what do you focus on, you know, and has that evolved over the years?
2: Yeah, I think that, um, and, and I'm also going to do a plug for Christopher and Jeremy here as my business partners, you know, it's really sure. because having two other business partners, you know, we we sat down early on in our partnership and we said, you know, we do have to have our own lane. I mean, we're equal to partners. We have our operating agreement. We know the decisions we need to make, whether it be unilateral you know, or not. But how do we swim in different lanes, but all focus on the same goal? And I've got a background in compliance and as the OSJ, and I love doing practice management, business consulting. I've always loved helping people build businesses. You know, Christopher Really focuses on uh, business development from a recruiting standpoint. You know, adding new advisors to the network, uh, as well as helping advisors add to their offices. And then, and then Christopher was a regional advisory consultant at LPL at one point in time, so he knows the fee based business inside and out and uh, profitability metrics of businesses and a lot of the mergers and acquisitions work. And then Jeremy, being our CFA, you know, he swims in the lane of running our portfolio consulting group and helping advisors add clients through being that uh, very uh, great resume, you know, with the CFA and his experience to help advisors close new business. But, you know, kind of coming back to me, I mean, my role, what it used to be 90% compliance, and I've tried to shift it over the last decade, almost trying to be about 60, 70% business consulting slash recruiting and less on compliance. I've hired a chief compliance officer to replace me. And when you look at that practice management business consulting I can distill thousands of conversations down into four things where advisors say, I want to grow. You know, number two is I want to be more efficient. You know, three is I want to add advisors to my business or add scale or merge or buy. You know, I want to grow that way. And the fourth is I need a contingency or succession plan. And those are all, you know, single conversations that can take hours to tease out, you know, whether it be growth and, you know, growth comes down to, you know, geez, I'm what are you doing to grow? You know, is it uh, through the tried and true uh, uh, relationship building and getting referrals from your clients and building depth and retention? Is it through centers of influence? Is it through marketing and social media and events? You know, there's always so many ways you can get your word out there. And of course, you know, being more efficient, boy, um, that, that just comes down. There's only really two levers you can pull there, right? I mean, it's it's implementing technology or adding people, uh, throwing bodies at a problem, and, and some people may not have the capital to throw bodies. So they get maybe on the, on the easier side, they, they've got to implement technology, but those are the two levers. And whether it be through our technology consulting work and integration, uh, API integration of technology or just virtual staffing, and then eventually having a, um, a full time person in, in your office, you know, adding advisors, recruiting, uh, mergers, acquisitions. We still love mergers and acquisitions work. Christopher probably works on 80% of them.
1: I wanted to ask specifically about growth. So I'm curious like, how you do think about that. I mean, almost unanimously, when we ask for questions from the audience, growth always comes up and everyone has questions about it. You look at the numbers of how quickly financial professionals are growing their their books. It's, it's an anemic number. So how do you think about that? I think the first
2: thing I ask is just treat me like a client. Give me your pitch. Nice. I do tell a lot of folks, the first thing is don't tell people what you do. Show them what you do. I mean, you need, in my opinion, you need a good graphic representation of what you do. I mean, back 10 years ago, 20 years ago, people were you know, teaching classes on, hey, give me your elevator pitch. You know what? Elevator pitch is, to me, is more or less, tell me about yourself. I mean, it's the old Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people stuff. And I literally just tell advisors, we need to get down on a piece of paper very succinctly some sort of graphic that clearly articulates what you do.
1: And is the goal there, Dax, is it more to to go through the thought exercise of how you communicate your value proposition or is it to have a marketing piece that you can go and distribute?
2: Well, it's absolutely, it is absolutely a one-page marketing piece because at the end of the day, and this is boring, and this is why people don't do it, is you have to tell the same story over and over and over to three groups 24-7 for the rest of your life if you're going to be successful. And that is your current clients, your prospective clients, and your centers of influence who feed you clients. And it is massively boring. But if you tell them and remind them over and over what you do, they will remember you when they need that service. That center, I don't know how many times I would go into a center of influence I knew really well. And I remind them of something and they would say, oh my gosh, I just had a client do a buy-sell agreement and they went off to Joe and he funded it with a $2 million life insurance policy. And I realized I wasn't getting in front of that center of influence enough. And I didn't clearly put a piece of paper in front of them to say, please put this on the corner of your desk. And the same thing with a prospect and the same thing with a client. You can't get referrals if a client doesn't remember what you do. That to me, if, if you don't have that down you know, a really good graphic and a really simple explanation of what you do and you don't tell people over and over and over and over, you're not going to grow. It just isn't going to happen.
0: Yeah, that's That's a really,
2: really good point. Um,
0: Transitioning a little bit, you've been doing a lot of speaking lately uh, around Reg BI. Kind of walk through some of the guidance you've been giving there.
2: I like to remind people, Reg BI is more Education and disclosure, and it's part substantiation. The responsibility falls on broker dealers, in some cases, it impacts RIA firms. That firm had to put together a new what was called ADV Part Three, also known as Form CRS, and it was it's a very simple two page document, double sided two page document that literally just broke down and said, "We're going to clearly explain to clients what the difference is between brokerage and advisory, and we're going to give that client." some recommended questions to ask. And I don't know if you've actually seen, you know, a a form CRS, as they call it, but it actually gives a bunch of questions, like 10, 12 questions to the retail investor to ask, like, hey, what fees am I going to pay? How are you going to help me choose between an advisory account and a brokerage account? Or um, what are your conflicts of interest? What's your regulatory history? Um, Who should I contact if, you know, uh, you're not around kind of thing? So it's actually a really cool document. You think kind of would be a no-brainer, right? And, and I think advisors should use it. I know a lot of advisors shy away from anything compliance, and say I really don't want to give this to my clients. But to be honest with you, it's a re- form CRS is a really good document to fully explain to your clients the difference between brokerage and advisory. And then just on the broker-dealer side, because remember, for the fee-based side, nothing changed. I mean, the fiduciary standard is still the highest standard, you know, in our country. You know, Reg BI did not tweak that at all. Reg BI just upped the game. You know, we used to be a suitability standard, then we went, went to a Know Your Customer, what was called KYC standard, and now it's a best interest standard. And I think what the SEC was focused on was when recommendations are made to clients, and part of the rule, if you if you really want to geek out on this, there, there are some categories for what a recommendation is, but when an, a, a registered rep recommends something to a client, the SEC just wanted to make sure that that was in the best interest of the client and not in the best interest of the advisor, i.e., a commission. Did you recommend that because you want a commission? And, and and I that's literally I summarize all of my comments on Reg BI that way. I don't. I could go into the care model and the care obligation and what really a, a recommendation is, but when you break it down that way and explain to an advisor that at the end of the day, the first thing you have to do when you meet with any client is you have to explain to them the difference between advisory and brokerage and determine what is the best route for them. It's literally like starting a trek through the forest. Hey, we've got a fork in the road here. And on one side, you may say you don't want to pay ongoing fees. You're going to buy and hold for a long period of time and you don't mind paying transactions. Guess what? That's a brokerage account. And if you say, I want active management, I don't want to pay commissions. I'd much rather buy stuff at no transaction fee or NAV. That's the fork in the road that goes to the left and that's an advisory account. And that's why we've been speaking so much on this is just to remind our advisors and the network and others, that's where it all starts. Depending on which path you take, if you go down the path of advisory, nothing changes. If you go down the path of brokerage, Now you're just going to have to substantiate more and more that every time you make a recommendation or a trade, it was done because it was in the best interest of the client, not in the best interest of your pocketbook. So try to keep it at, at, we always try to keep things in simple terms because that's how we're going to to explain it to clients. If I have to explain it to an advisor, I want them to turn right around and explain it the same way to a client. So you have a
1: bunch of questions that you've been having different people think about. Can you go through some of those questions?
2: Right now, you know, with COVID and the economy, I think the top four questions I've been getting asked is, you know, Dax, should I shut down my office? Uh, my my office lease is coming up for renewal. I don't think I need my office space anymore. What should I do? And then that really teases out, you know, are your clients going to come into an office again? Did you ever really use it in the first place? What, what would be your perception in the community if, um, you don't have an office space and possibly mail and uh, client statements have your home address on them, right? I mean, what? how are you going to feel about that? I think the stigma of having a home office is completely gone now because uh, no one can judge you on that since everybody's working from home. So that's that's one of the the number one. We've been doing some research and helping our advisors kind of guide through that because there's there's really three choices, right? I mean, if you have a brick and mortar office that you've had forever and you went in from eight to five, there's only really three variables from this point on, which is great. I, I've had to work from home for three months. So I like it and I'm going to keep on doing it, but I'm going to keep that office. So it's kind of a part-time office, part-time at home. You, you share your time. It could be, I don't want to pay for that. So I want to go to a Regis. I, I still want to have access to a conference room or something else, or my mail goes someplace and have an address. So I'm going to go to a Regis. I'm going to, I'm going to buy something along their uh, framework of, just a conference room or a full blown office, you know, or just go home full time and explain to your clients. I can service you. I've got DocuSign. I can uh, text with you compliantly. I can do go to meetings with you compliantly. Uh, I can uh, share everything in a, in a shared drive, you know, with you compliantly. And we don't really need to uh, see each other face to face and shake hands again. Now there'll be consequences of that we all know it, but those are really the three models, and and we have had people challenged with the decision on on all of those and we'll see what happens I mean, we will wake up in a year and go oh my gosh 30 people shut down their offices you know and is it working for them and then some people will go ahead eh, it's not working too well some people will say the best thing I ever did I mean, I'm saving 30 40 50 grand a year
1: yeah yeah I want you to put your uh, futurist hat on for a second and I want you to to think about our business over the next decade but but maybe in two aspects. One, what is some a change that's happening today that you see accelerating over the next decade, and what's something that no one's really talking about or changing that you see slapping us in the face somewhere in the next decade?
2: Um, well, I, I think the the easy trends that some people started were the virtualization of their business, right? I mean, it's it's I maybe don't need a full-time person in the office next to me. So I'm going to virtualize my own staff where I'm going to go to a uh, virtual admin type company because I only need somebody for 20 hours a week. And I think there are people that are on different levels of that paradigm, but a lot of people are going to catch up uh, really quick and... People that were like, that's never going to happen. I mean, I, I had people year, you know, two years ago say, I'll never do a go-to meeting. I'll always meet my clients. And it's like, hey, I, how are you doing now? Um, yeah. and, they're, and they're like, I love it. I love it. I was
1: talking to a client recently that said the same comment, a guy you never would have expected that enjoyed working from home. He was so proud that he just bought two monitors. He set up his whole situation in the basement. He's like, this is going to be my life for the foreseeable future. I'm just going to embrace it. But the last guy you'd expect to make those comments.
2: Yeah. I, and so we're we're you're gonna have people that are running that race at different levels, right? You have people way out in front, and you got people catching up, and then everybody's just kind of gonna gonna get caught up. You know, probably in, in my opinion, probably a year now. There there are a lot of people that are still at the starting block. You know, they've dug their heels in and are are betting on everything's gonna go back to normal, and you it may. Jeez, I, I pray it goes back, right? I pray there's a vaccine. Yeah. There's, this everything goes back to normal because. I'm a person that loves traveling and getting out and seeing advisors, and and I'm being just personally productively impacted by this because I, well, I can do everything virtual. It's great. Uh, it's not the same. It just
1: not up. the same. same.
2: So, if I just throw my futuristic hat on, you know, I I bought. You know, I'm in my office. I've got my Surface Pro here. I've got a, a big wide screen. But but three months ago, I actually bought a virtual reality computer, and uh, we homeschool. Uh, so part of it was for my kids, education wise, we want to go visit a museum, the Smithsonian. They get to do it in virtual reality. Wow. Um, but I wanted, uh, I wanted to also do this to experiment with virtual reality meeting rooms. And our advisor is going to get out of the 2D model into the 3D model from a, hey, I want to meet you. Let's meet in my virtual reality meeting room. And we'll actually be able to see each other full body and talk and see if it's different. Now the problem is the cost of entry. Right now, I mean, I went to Dell. I bought an Alien Alienware virtual reality computer. I've got the Oculus headset. Wow! You know, it, it's not the um, it's not like an iPad, right? Where everybody has an iPad and you can do virtual reality. I mean, you, you need the software, so it's it's not everybody has that. Um, but maybe the cost will come down. And will you be able to be in a virtual reality environment and engage better? I mean, you, we've already seen the webinars out there where people are saying, you know, the problem with Zoom and go to meeting, you can't see people's hands and hands convey, you know, massive amount of communication power in meetings and um, and in sales and everything else. So they, do you now need to get your hands above the camera? Do you need to switch out your camera and have your a full room camera? not just one directly on your face. I mean, what are we going to be doing here to make this better, a better experience for our clients? So that's some of the futuristic stuff I put on there. But as far as will people completely move into their homes and uh, and do all that, I, I, it's an economic issue. It's a comfort level. I'm a, I'm a Colby certified coach, K-O-L-B-E. You know, some people may be listening to this. have probably had a Colby A assessment and I think that's a lot of work that we're doing is trying to help people understand instinctually how they're working and problem solving. And this whole shelter in place, stay at home, work from home environment is not good for a lot of people that need human collaboration. And I think the tech companies are going to figure this out as well. I mean, you've heard Google say we're going to let people stay at home for another um you know, year, and then others are probably saying, "Geez, you know, we we're trying this, but we just don't have the same collaboration in uh, R and D and other development." You know, we'll see; time will tell. You know what the uh, consequences of this whole thing are.
0: Yeah, that's really really interesting. You had started talking about you know questions that you're you're having your advisors think about, and you started. Did you
2: cover all of them? No. I, well, I mean, first of all, I mean the office office ones are kind of a no brainer, you know the others are kind of just economics based I mean should I buy a business uh, I've got an opportunity to buy a business or hey man I've been um, I've been nurturing a purchase for six months nine months I mean some of these some of these things take a long time and then it's like hey if, if when we when we saw that first big drop between February 21st and the middle you know late March we had a lot of people get cold feet on buying businesses and rightly so. I mean, people that were getting ready to sign leases, you know, to take down bigger office space to because they were going to buy a business. Um, so should I buy a business during this period of time? What will it be worth? How can I protect myself if we have another uh, uh, leg down? Uh, should I change broker dealers? That's a big one. You know, we, people study this all the time. Do, do clients move during uh, financial stress or when everything's great? You know, do advisors do the same thing? Should I hire another person? You know, should I, should I grow? Should I expand? You know, or should I contract? I think those people that are growing always see every challenge as an opportunity to get out there and sell their wares yeah, and communicate and take care of their clients and expand.
0: Yeah. And, and maybe we'll conclude here um, with a little bit of the M&A stuff. So Talk about what, where you spend your time with M and A and acquisitions. Is there a lot of competition right now for for acquiring books? What does that look like? The people that are getting it done well. What do you see? Just some general guidance around there because I think you're in a unique role and and pers- you'll have a, a unique perspective to be able to give us insight there that few can.
2: Um, yes, I mean we get asked the, the question all the time about um, you know, hey, how many books are for sale out there? Um, you know, where's the list? There are, there are brokers, right? I mean, there are business brokers uh, around the country. But, I, but it, it kind of the old analogies with classified ads, right? I mean, how many jobs are really posted that are available? There's tons of businesses out there that need employees. They just haven't posted the job. I mean, 90% of jobs available are never posted. Uh, sometimes, I mean, I've had people, I, I had one lady walk in my office one time, sorry to get on a tangent, literally walk in my office with a resume and hand it to my front desk person. We hired her. I needed somebody. I just hadn't had time to post a, a job description yet. Oh, and she was great. She's still with us. She's been with us nine years. I mean, look at that initiative. So the reason I tell that story is advisors who want to buy businesses need to go find the businesses to buy. Um, look in your own building, look on your own block, pull out. Your, you know, your your Google, you know, pull out your uh, your map and say, and investment advisors, financial planners, find them in your area. And of course, there, there is research out there. I mean, most broker dealers, as well as we, have a data discovery database, and you can search for advisors by zip code. I mean, you can email them, or you can you know send letters. You can try to get a hold of them, stalk them on LinkedIn, connect with them. It literally is still a grassroots level, you know, game. And there's going to be some sort of catalyst event. It, God forbid it's health. You know, it could just be waking up and saying, you know, I just don't want to deal with this anymore or I've achieved financial security um, or I'm not growing. And I, I like to tell some folks, if you're in the business of buying you know, or you want to go buy a business, when you meet with a seller, you want that seller to walk away from that conversation the first time saying one thing, I better sell my business to this person or I'm going to lose my business to this person. I mean, you better come hmm. in with your your business plan, your graphic, your services, and say, "This is what we do. Do you want to be a part of it? Yes or no? Do you want your clients to be part of it?" So acquisitions are still happening. We have a whole project management spreadsheet uh, when we start helping advisors. You know, one of the first steps is we say, "Are you prepared to be prepared?" Which means Do you have the financing lined up? Do you even know where you're going to get financing? What if you went in and told your staff, hey, I'm going to go out and buy a business or plan on buying a business? Is your staff going to look at you and say, hey, we're already a little bit overworked here. We can't handle that. I mean, what resources are you going to have? Is Is your own portfolio management dialed in? So if you actually have a downturn while you're purchasing a business, you're not going to be turning around, taking care of your own portfolio. So how is your time management? What's your technology look like? Is your technology all integrated? Because you're going to have to integrate another business into it. So are you prepared to be prepared to buy a business? And if you've done all that work, you've got your time management dialed in, your staff is on board, your technology is squared away, your clients are content, you've got a great communication plan with them, and now you can take that time to go look, then you're prepared to start having those conversations. And sell yourself because that's what that's what sellers buy. I mean, they buy you on behalf of their clients and the best ones will turn right around and say, you know what, you're going to manage my retirement assets because that's what they're going to tell their clients. Hey, I, I chose this guy because right. he's my money now and I want you to have the same experience with his staff and his money management process and his financial planning process and, and her ability to be empathetic and take care of you through retirement and her ability to talk to you about long-term care. So whoever it is, you know, they're going to be buying you and your team. And that's what's exciting when you when you get the logic out of it because a lot of buyers come into it from a logic standpoint. Okay, what's my down payment? What's my monthly payment? What's my after-tax ROI? What's this? When am I going to be fully paid off? You're helping somebody retire. I mean, you you're taking 10 and 20 and 30 year relationships and absorbing them and carrying those legacies on. I mean, it's so much deeper than just a financial deal. Of course, people focus on the financial deal because a deal has to work out. But beyond that, I mean, it is an amazing opportunity to take care of somebody who has dedicated their life to helping others.
1: That's been a theme, it seems like, throughout this entire conversation is that relationships still matter. People still matter, matter. The the emotional connection that we have with these ideas are not just numbers on a page. It seems to be a constant theme with everything we've talked about, with the technology enhancements and M&A, what advisors need to be doing every day.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like um, with the M&A... Although there is some competition for these deals, you really can differentiate yourself if you approach it from that perspective that Dax just described. Um, that's probably pretty different and pretty refreshing. Would you say, Dax?
2: Uh, yes. And and I and I will make it clear, though. There are, you know, when somebody is selling their business, and maybe I'll equate this to a kind of a house, you know, as well. Some people will just take the largest offer, right? And then there's other people that will sell their house and say, you know what? I, You know, honey, when we moved in here, little Dax was two years old and we had the puppies born on the kitchen uh, uh, kitchen floor and we had four other kids in this house. I mean, they have the nostalgia and they say, we want to sell this home to a young family. Now, listen, some private equity firm could come in and buy that house and give them a great price, right? Or they could turn around and go, you know, we're going to accept $100,000 less, but we want a young family to do what we did. And, and the reason I use that analogy is... The same thing happens in selling your business. There are aggregators out there that can pay a lot of money and they even provide some benefits and do some other really cool stuff. But sometimes it's just the person going, you know, I've been in this community 30 years. I'm going to sell it to somebody else who's been in this community 30 years who lives on, you know, just down the street from me. Their kids go to the same school my kids went to. It's that whole relationship side. So it goes either way. There is competition but when people are focused on, it's more than money. Then some really good things happen, and retention is really high, and clients are taken care of. So, Dax,
0: did we miss anything?
2: This has been great. I mean, one of the things you had talked to me beforehand was just about what do uh, what do I see advisors kind of uh, what do they struggle with the most? You know, yeah. where could they, where could they improve, or, or what are the biggest opportunities and challenges in our industry? I would just say right now like all small business owners, it's time management. And even on the best day pre-COVID, time management, <laughs> the whole working on your business while you're in your business, right um, it is darn near the toughest thing you have to do. Post-COVID, it's darn near impossible with dispersed teams. Now, sure, there are some advisors that are bringing everybody back in the office and creating a very safe environment for their team members. But boy, post-COVID, all the uncertainty, everything else, I think that's the one thing potentially where you're going to see a lot of differentiators is people that built a really good team that allowed their lead advisor to be a CEO of the business, not just an advisor, but really be a CEO. Those businesses where people are the CEOs are going to excel going forward. But the biggest struggle for everyone else is going to be time management for the next year. And there are gonna be people that literally have taken market share and other people that have just stayed stagnant.
0: Yeah. Boy, is that the truth, you know? You can get to three, four, five o'clock in the day. And some days you're like, wow, it's amazing how much I accomplished. And then there, you know, there's those other days you're like, How did this day go by? It evaporates. It's just completely bad invas- So, Dax, that that was amazing. I really want to thank our guest today, Dax Staduar. Um, amazing insight, Dax, and we really appreciate
2: you being on the show. Well, I really appreciate it, uh, Kurt and Steve. This has been great and a lot of fun.
0: All right, we'll be back. Uh, Costanza Corner is next.
1: And welcome back to the whole truth. And welcome to the Costanza Corner, where we share an uplifting or positive story to close out the show. Side, you got one for us today. What you got?
0: I think it's going to be uplifting. It is to me, but some of this stuff, you know, these topics get a little political. But I think this is good. I think everyone should really celebrate this. China has come out and said that they are pledging to be carbon neutral by 2060. Now, why is that a big deal? If we talk about carbon in the atmosphere and where it comes from, yes, the US is a big driver. China is a huge Humongous driver, yeah. Huge. And what their position has been historically is hey, we are a developing com- uh, country. So we should not necessarily take a lot of the burb- burden for reducing carbon. I've
1: heard that argument. Like, all you developed countries, y'all did this 50 years ago. Why can't we do it now?
0: Yeah, the Industrial Revolution. And so we're not the ones that need to take the lead here. The problem is the size of that country. And they were using a lot of coal and all this. So them coming out and saying this is a really big deal. And it surprised a lot of people. Where did you see this? I'm surprised I, di- I didn't see this. All over the... Yeah, it showed up in Bloomberg, New York Times. No kidding. kidding. And- Yeah. And the commentary seems to be about it. You know, what China says and what China does sometimes aren't absolutely aren't the same thing,
1: probably to a large extent.
0: Yeah. And they don't have a lot of specifics. But just to have this turnaround now and just to acknowledge that coming from them is is just a really big deal. And I was very much uplifted when I read it.
1: So this is like a lot of information that we're being fed right now. You can either choose to see it optimistically, or you can choose just to be a negative Nancy and take it negatively. That's right. So 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 let's choose to see it positively. I like
0: it. Let's choose to see this positively, Kurt, that China is taking an enormous, and if they do, it's significant step. So thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time.
1: You can find The Whole Truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash truth. All one word.
0: Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC.